This week we're continuing just one more, one more look at the uh, membership vows, the vows that we've taken together and we've covenanted together in this congregation. Uh, we'll look at the last three vows uh, today. So hear God's word from Numbers chapter 30 and um, pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel saying, this is the thing which Yahweh has commanded. If a man makes a vow to Yahweh, or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we do pray that you would keep us from rash vows, from foolish promises. We pray that you would uh, uh, inspire us by your spirit to make good promises and promises that we can keep. So, in humble reliance upon the grace of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grant us the grace to keep our covenants and the covenant we have made here together. Father, strengthen us, we pray, and guide us through these things as we study them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, somewhere along the way, I'm sure you've heard of the 80-20 rule. It actually has a name. Economists call the 80-20 rule the Pareto principle. And it states that in most cases, roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. It was named after an Italian economist named Pareto. I can't pronounce his first name, but his last name was Pareto. And he observed that 80% of the land in Italy was, was owned by 20% of the people. And then when he observed in his garden that 20% of the pea plants were producing 80% of the peas, thus was born the Pareto principle. And from, from there, the principle has been observed in many other disciplines. It's been a common understanding in business that 80% of your revenue is going to come from about 20% of your clients. Also, 80% of your problems come from a different 20% of your customers. 80% of the work usually gets done by 20% of your employees. Now, in trying to figure out, okay, I've got all kinds of descriptions of this, but I don't ever see the why. Why is this the case? A lot of, a lot of assertions, yeah, this is the way things are. And uh, the only thing that I can figure out is that it, it has to do with the unequal distribution of gifts among a population. But it also, in a, in a fallen world, nothing is 100%, right? There's, there's always setbacks and, and uh, things that give us a lower yield than what we would expect. Now, I'm sure you've heard this principle applied, and certainly it's, it's applied to volunteer organizations and even to churches. There are all kinds of articles from church leaders and pastors addressing this 80-20 phenomenon, asking why it is in most organizations 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the financial support. Now, often um, these numbers are quoted uh, by a, a bitter member of the 20% who is cleaning up after uh, an event for the 30th time in a row and looking around at the same four people who've been cleaning up and thinking, well, you know, where's everybody else? Where did everybody else go? Why am I here uh, stuck uh, doing this again? Why are there some people who never offer themselves for anything why do the same people sign up for everything? 
Why are there those who have no problem benefiting from the work of others and no offer to help themselves? Well, to be clear, and I want to, I want to be sure and I want you to hear me on this, I really don't believe our congregation fits the Pareto principle strictly. I don't believe uh, it's, there's a, we're an 80-20 church. When there's a call that goes out or a need, uh, we, get, we get lots of response and sometimes we get response from, from folks that we know you got your hands full, but you're there to help and you're there to, to do. And, uh, and, it, and it really is wonderful. You have, you have people sticking their necks out and doing things for other people all the time. And I'm, I'm really, um, uh, really thankful, very grateful for that. But in any congregation, it's just, it's just true. You have uh, folks who are just wired to give and help and work and serve. They just do it as a rule. And you have folk, for whatever reason, are wired not to. It, it just, we just don't do that. And, and those who do are not always richer or have more free time on their hands or more resources at their disposal than those who don't, generally speaking. We, we tend to think, oh, well, they can give, sure, because they're so well off. Or, or they, they, can, they can do, they can sign up and go because they have so much free time. I can't because I'm very busy. I can't because I'm very broke. But that's not the difference between the do's and the don'ts. The doers don't magically have more than 24 hours in their day, right? They don't have more than seven days in their week. The only difference in, in, in those who practice liberality with their time and resources and those who don't is that those who do have predetermined for themselves and for their family, and when there's a need, we help. We just, we just do it. I'm not going to wait for somebody to come twist my arm. I'm not going to wait for uh, somebody to, to come beg me. I, I just, I give. That's who I am. Sometimes I can do a little bit more than other times. Sometimes I can't help over here because I'm already helping over there. But my, my default setting is give. That's, that's, just, that's just what I've determined. And then, and then for those who don't, their default setting is, well, I just don't do that. That's just my answer to everything. I look at the church calendar and I say, well, I just don't do that. And I just don't do that. And I just don't do that. And I don't give to that. And I don't give to that. That's just who I am. I just don't. That's me. I don't. Um, or I'm too busy. Um, so uh, to be honest, when we say I'm too busy, the, 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 the translation of that, and you know the translation of that is I don't want to, right? That's the translation. I don't want to. Because we pretty much all do what we want to do. If there's something you really want to be a part of, you will move heaven and earth to be there and to do it. Cancel all my plans. Clear my schedule. Oh my goodness, I want to be a part of that. But when it comes to the body of Christ, when the call to help goes out, there are some who just don't believe that it applies to them. Uh, it's possible, and I, and I want to be charitable. I want to be very charitable. It's probably, and it's possible, that they really don't think they have anything significant to contribute. Let me disabuse you of that. If, if your default setting is, I don't, let me tell you, you are needed. You are essential. You are a part of the body of Christ. And, and we use that term body just as Paul does in the epistles to say that you may be a thumb, you may be a hand, you may be an arm. We need all of you. There's no part of my physical body that I can do without. If you ask me, eh, you, you can do without a little toe. No, I can't. I can't do without it. I don't know what it does, but I can't do without it. I need it, right? I can't, I can't do without any part of me. And I'm thankful for every part of me. And when, when you are a part of a body, you play an essential important role. So, so don't ever think that you don't have anything significant to contribute. 
Don't think that you're not welcome or you're not needed. Certainly don't think that you have nothing to gain uh, because you certainly do, as we'll see today. There's a whole life and blessing and promises that come with, uh, with engaging the body and engaging in covenant life. Well, there could be several factors, but, but as we continue to work through our membership vows today, uh, I, want, I want you to know and I want you to hear that, that uh, your level per, of a participation in the life of the covenant has very little to do with how much time you have and with how much money you have, and it's everything to do with how seriously you take the commitments that we've made to each other. If we're reflecting the life of the Trinity, there's no 80-20. There's, there's no 50-50. There's 100 right? The, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in their mutual displays of, of adoration and service and, and humbling themselves before the other and glorifying the other. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't hold back from glorifying the Son. He doesn't think, oh, well, maybe he doesn't want to be glorified today. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't need me. Maybe, maybe the Father doesn't need my praise. The Son doesn't, doesn't hold back because he doesn't feel like obeying the Father today, right? In the, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son doesn't, doesn't wait to be uh, shaken out of bed to go serve the Father, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't, don't withhold their love, adoration, service, obedience, faithfulness to each other. And if we're reflecting the life of the Trinity, not, not just as individuals, but as a community, and, and as I said last week, it's only in community that we can really reflect the life of the Trinity. If we are living like that, there's no 80-20. That's, that's foreign. We are 100, 100, 100, everyone engaged in life. Last week, we saw that God relates to us in terms of his covenant. In all of his dealings with man, God leads with the covenant. And, and as we saw last week, his covenant is social, it is structural, it is gracious. It is social in that it deals with persons, both individually and corporately. It is structural because it has requirements and expectations, and it is gracious. It is all based on God's gracious drawing us and leading us and pursuing us by his Holy Spirit. And so just as you and I have a covenant with God that is personal, it is structural, it is gracious, as we also saw last week, our relationship to each other is also social, structural, and gracious. In this congregation, this takes the shape of a membership covenant, vows that we have all taken, vows that form the structural basis of that gracious interpersonal covenant. We have taken vows to give shape to our covenant. So, so we don't agree to just get along so long as we feel like it or serve each other in ways that are personally convenient or, or based on emotional subjective feelings about each other. It's based in objective concrete duties that we have toward each other. My vows to you that I took on my installation as pastor, my vows toward you are binding upon me that require me to serve you in very specific ways. I owe you certain duties. And your vows to each other and to me do the same. We all recognize this in other areas of life. We've all, we, we who are married have, have taken marriage vows, and those marriage vows put you in a relationship that has a great many blessings, but also a number of obligations. And we... we 
we recognize there are happy obligations. And out of your love for your spouse, the spouse that God gives you, you happily submit yourself to those obligations. You've heard me say so many times that love commits itself. Love submits itself. Love binds itself to another. If a guy isn't willing to marry a girl, you know, they've been hanging out for three or four years. It's like, when are you going to marry her? I love her, but I ain't going to marry her. Man, you don't love her. You don't really love her. Love commits itself. You have to be willing to be bound. You have to be willing to be committed. Put your name on paper and say, say vows before God and everybody that you're going to love her in, in sickness and in health till death do you part. Then I'll believe that you love her. Love submits itself. Love commits itself. Um, and, and so if you take an oath of office or you take an oath of citizenship or an, an oath of enlistment, uh, enlistment for the military, I, I think we all understand, we all recognize how those vows bind us and constrain us and make us part of something that we have a solemn duty to support and protect. We take those vows seriously. <laughs> there are dire and necessary consequences for breaking any of those vows that I just mentioned. Horrible consequences for breaking any of these vows. But have we taken the vows that we have made to God through His church as seriously as we've taken any of these? Do we have a sense of duty, a sense of commitment in the same way that we've made other promises? Well, what does God say about the necessity of keeping your covenants? I read from Numbers chapter 30, and we really it, it would really be great to work through um, all of the, the, the biblical data on covenant keeping, but I do actually want to get to our vows, so I just want to give you a couple of points. Uh, Numbers chapter 30, we hear from Moses, um, if a man vows a vow to Yahweh or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The expectation is that you keep your word. You keep your promises. Even to your own hurt, you keep your promises. Now, there are provisions in God's law for rash vows. There are provisions for foolish vows or vows that are out of order. Here, uh, if you keep on reading in chapter 30, if a young woman in, in her father's house makes a foolish or rash vow, the father can overturn it. Uh, and, and, he can, uh, and he can make it right. There are some vows that are out of order. So there are warnings against foolish pledges. But if a vow is in order, you must keep it. And of course, Israel, we know throughout her history, she was known as much by her covenant breaking as, as anything else. And the prophetic books that we have are all about calling Israel back to her covenant vows, calling her back to her husband, as in the book of Hosea, where God uh, paints Israel as this harlot who has left her husband, broken her marriage vows, and now he, he calls her back. We read Nahum last week, um, where uh, God calls Judah to keep her vows in light of Assyria's departure from the covenant. In the book of, uh, in, in Jeremiah's book, in chapter uh, 44, there's this really interesting thing, another, another thing I'd love to spend more time on than I have today, but in, in Jeremiah 44, Jeremiah calls out Israel for breaking their covenant with God, and in turn, they start making vows to idols. They make vows to the queen of heaven, the, one of these uh, sky goddesses of the, of the ancient Babylonian religion. There are, there are Jews living in Egypt, and Jeremiah sends them this message in Jeremiah 44, 
24, if you're following along or want the reference for later. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, it was uh, actually, uh, it started with the women making vows to the, the queen of heaven, the, the sky goddess, Astarte, in, uh, in the ancient idolatrous religion. And so that's why he singles them out. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and specifically to all the women, hear the word of Yahweh, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel saying, you and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands saying, we will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, all Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says Yahweh, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, Yahweh God lives. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and famine until there is an end to them. Uh, the curse of covenant breaking is that is God withdraws his blessing and he turns us over to covenant breakers and their tyranny to keep covenant with them. The, the bottom line is you're going to keep covenant with somebody. The question is, whose promises are you going to keep? Whose covenant are you going to be engaged in? The gods of this age, the gods of this world, or the God of creation, the, the God of covenant, the God who uh, is your king and who has saved you? And so the curse of covenant breaking is being turned over to the tyranny of covenant breakers and idolaters. Now, God has given us Israel's history so that we can learn from her errors. And so we don't repeat history. God calls us to covenant fidelity. And to that end, we are, over these two Sundays, reviewing our vows that we have made to each other as, as, uh, as members of this body, of this local church. Last week, we went over the first two. They're on your bulletin under the... Um, under the, the prayer list. And the first two you see there concern your understanding of the gospel, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your standing as a child of God. The first two have to deal with your faith. The last three have to do with your faithfulness. First, we're asking, are you a believer? Are you a child of God? Now, how do you live in these last three? So we're going to read these last three and uh, spend a couple of minutes on each one of them. So the third one, vow C. Do you now promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you will strive to live a life of repentance and obedience in a manner worthy of the followers of Christ. Remember how I keep describing this as a gracious covenant, because God's covenant is gracious. And here we acknowledge our humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to live in grace with each other, which means that we are not expecting perfection out of each other. But we do expect that when we mess up, when I sin, when you sin, when we sin against each other, that we're going to run to make it right. We rush to the process of repentance and restoration. We afford each other the grace that is necessary to forgive and be forgiven. We create an environment of patience and long-suffering and charity. That's first, that this is a gracious environment where if I ask you to forgive me, then you say, oh boy, I forgive you. And where I say, you know what, you've, you've really hurt me and you've really offended me and I tried to let love cover it, but I, I've got to tell you, you've, you've really injured me. And you say, oh my goodness, I hear you and I confess and I repent. And maybe I don't even see my sin, but I, I, I know that we've got to work on this. You see, that's the environment that we're creating here. 
But now, at the same time, we, we also recognize there is a way to be so falsely gracious and so permissive that you create chaos, that you have anarchy and no order, you see? So we're maintaining at the same time the structure of the covenant. We agree together that we're going to rely on God's grace and be gracious with each other in order to be obedient, right? We don't have grace so that we can all go crazy and we all live like maniacs, right? We have grace so that we can be obedient. We're going to live lives worthy of followers of Christ. And what that means in that vow is that when you look at the lives of the people of this church, you are going to see people who are pursuing righteousness. We are striving toward faithfulness in our marriages. We are committed to one spouse. We don't have wandering eyes. We don't flirt. We don't put ourselves in compromising positions with people of the opposite sex. Married people don't broadcast their availability. You know, there's a way to do that. There's a way to say, you know what? I'm not really pursuing an affair, but if one just lands in my lap, I'm open to it. There's a way of doing that. We don't do that. We don't have this openness to adultery or covenant breaking with our spouses. We're pursuing faithfulness in our marriages. We're pursuing faithfulness toward our children. We provide them with a Christian education. We nurture them in the Christian faith. We show them that the covenant is the happiest, most blessed place on earth. And that's always been my goal with my children is that the covenant is the happiest place on earth. And there is nothing out there that comes anywhere close to what we have together here. I mean, go look at it. Go try it. See how ugly, see how disgusting, see how terrible that is. It, it, there's nothing out there that beats what we have. That's what we show them. We pursue them with happiness and, and with, with blessedness. We correct them and we discipline our children when they disobey. We restrain their sin. We teach them God's law when we sit in our houses and when we walk down the road, when we lie down and when we rise up. We are pursuing faithfulness with our children. And that also means that we are a people who have a good reputation with each other and with our community. We are not a people who are known in the community as people who are cheaters, who are liars, who defraud others, who are rebellious. We don't have this, this hateful behavior. We're going to be a people who keep our commitments, who pay our bills, who are reliable. We're trustworthy and true. In Romans 2, Paul talks about those who are living dishonorably in the, in the culture, who are pursuing idols, they're committing adultery, they're living dishonorably, generally robbing temples. And Paul writes to them, he says, the name of God is blasphemed because of you. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul writing that to you? The name of God is blasphemed because of you. I didn't mean to point at somebody in particular, right? I'm not pointing at Frank. <laughs> I'll just point, I'll point up here. The name of God is blasphemed because of you. Could you imagine that? Oh, me, I, my behavior is creating and causing unbelief and rebellion among the, the unbelievers. Can you imagine that being the reputation of your church? And we've seen it so many times though, right? With churches and pastors who fall horribly in all manner of perversion and wickedness, they bring shame to the name of Jesus. And what happens? The unbelievers blaspheme. They say, hey, yeah, those Christians, that's exactly what you get every time with those Christians, right? They point to the church and say, I thought they were more righteous than us. I guess they're not. Later in Romans, Paul says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live 
peaceably with all. There, there's, there's a good reputation that God's people are to have in the community, in the culture, in the world. Now, of course, you, you, as you think about that, you say, well, wait a minute. The church has this uh, standard of godliness, and we're following God's law, but the world has a very different understanding of what's righteous and what's right. So we could be doing what God says, but the world looks at us and says, huh, I mean, that doesn't look right. That looks really out of order. And they, they have this really humanistic standard of judgment so that you're being righteous and you're following the Lord, but it looks like you're not to the world. Well, well Peter addresses that in uh, his first epistle. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So he recognizes there are foolish men with foolish judgment who are really ignorant of God's ways in God's law, but you live according to God's standard. You live according to God's law, and sooner or later the truth will come out, and you will be vindicated uh, in your righteousness before God. The, the sum of this vow, I think, is in the ninth commandment. We are called by the ninth commandment, not, not to bear false witness against your neighbor, right? And every commandment has both the negative and the positive side of that. If I'm not to bear false witness against my neighbor, that means I'm also required by God's law to protect the reputation of my neighbor. I am to build him up with my words. We are called by the ninth commandment to protect each other's reputations. Because we're in covenant with each other, what I do affects you. What you do affects me. We have a collective reputation that we guard, not out of worldly pride, but in guarding the reputation of Jesus. How you live either brings honor or shame to the Lord Jesus. And we, in this congregation, have vowed together to honor the name of Jesus with our behavior. The, the, the next vow is D. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Our elders are fairly sensitive to the modern demands of family and work life and also sensitive to the fact that we live in a commuter culture. In this part of the country, we live in a, a commuter community. Everybody drives everywhere. It's, it seems like it's always 40 minutes for me to do anything, right? And we go to Walmart. Where? Well, we go to that one 40 minutes that way or that one 40 minutes that way. It seems like we're always in the car going somewhere, and that really cuts down on some of the other things that we really want to do. We understand that you have jobs that take a lot out of you. You have children who are engaged in all kinds of great activities that take you in the, into the community, and you're with other people. You're interacting with people in the community. So because of this, we're very careful not to overpopulate the church calendar. The only required gathering is Sunday morning on the Lord's Day here at Christ Church. That's what we mean when we say support the worship of the church. We're talking about this church, right? We're not talking about every other church in town. We're talking about this church. Support the worship of this church here. And if you're a member, we want to see you every single Lord's Day. We want to see you unless there's some extraordinary circumstance. That's what you've promised to do when you promise to support the worship of the church. We place a high premium on worship because we believe that the world is transformed and the world is preserved and the world is renewed week by week in the worship of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You and I get this high and holy honor today of entering into the presence of the creator of the universe. And he listens to our prayers and he listens to our petitions and he, he speaks to us and he communes with us at his table. And then he sends us back into the world with our marching orders. And by doing this week by week by week, the world is transformed. And when the church has order and stability, society has order and stability. As the church goes, so goes the world. When the church is in disarray, so is the world. And it's no surprise then, looking at the state of our world, looking at the state of our nation, that for most Christians, attending worship is not essential. The church is in disarray. The church is in disorder because Christians don't even love her. <laughs> they they want to uh, push her aside and keep her at arm's length and, and act as if their devotion to the Lord Jesus has nothing whatsoever to do with the connection to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is over here. I'm over here. Sure, attending worship is fine. You know, it's okay to do it if you feel like it benefits you, right? I mean, the, the, the church offers all these opportunities for fellowship and service, and it gives you connections in the community, but, but you don't need it, right? I, I mean, preaching is nice, okay, if it grabs your interest and, and you like it, if you like the guy, I guess, but, but you can get preaching anywhere. You get preaching on the internet, you can get it on the radio, you can get it on podcasts, you can get it on TV. And, and worship, it's good, you know, once every six weeks, I guess. I need my batteries recharged, right? Kind of helps me along in my Christian life a little bit. But it's not like the end of the world if we miss worship, right? It's not like the end of the world. It's really nice when you need it, but it really has very little to do with our spiritual health. That's what our quiet time is for, right? That's what personal devotion is for. And that's the attitude. That's the way that you hear people talk, whether explicitly or, or in, in just hinting at it. That's the attitude and that's the behavior. And so folks miss worship for the slightest little reason and it doesn't phase them. Why? Why? We're, we're, oh, we're on vacation. We just don't worship when we're on vacation, right? I mean, I spent 10 hours finding the right hotel and the right theme park tickets and the, and the, how we're going to get from this point to this point. And I picked out my six favorite restaurants, but I just didn't have time to look for a church to worship at when I was out of town on Sunday, right? It's just too, it's just too hard. I just don't know where to go on Sunday. So we just stayed at home. We sang a song or we read something. We didn't go to church. I mean, it's just not important to us. It's, it's, where does it come on our priorities? Or, or uh, you know what, Sunday is the only day that we can really get together as a family. That's the only day, and so oh, we've just been working so hard, I just, we just needed some family time. Right, going to the beach is family time, going to the mountains is family time, going to the mall is family time, going to the movie theater is family time, but coming to worship the Lord together, that's not family time, that's different. That's not family time. Or, you know, we've got all these people in town and, and some of them don't go to church, so, so we just thought we'd stay home with them today. Or, you know, little Bobby is on a team and he's got a game today and there's no way he's going to get a scholarship if he doesn't go to this t-ball game today. He's got to go to this one. Or I have a project. I started the project Saturday and I got to get it done on Sunday. I just couldn't, I just, I got to finish it. Or, you know what, I stayed out too late on Saturday night and I couldn't get to worship. You see, we just don't, in this culture, as Americans, in our society, we don't have an appreciation for the fact that worship is central to all of life. We build our life outwards from worship. We start in worship. This is the beginning of the week. You have given to God the first fruits of your week. 
You have gotten up out of your bed, you have come to worship, and you've said, because I give you this part, God, the whole part belongs to you. All of life flows out of worship. We build our life around it. It is central to my relationship to the Lord Jesus. It is central for my family's life. If you want stability and order in your home, it begins with regular faithful worship. And you never, ever, 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 ever miss unless there's some extraordinary circumstance and some extreme circumstance that keeps you away. Your kids know Sunday, we're going to worship. There's no waking up on Sunday saying, well, do we feel like going today? Are we going to go? I don't know. Do you feel like, I don't know. Well, we're not going to go today. You know, that doesn't happen. Why? Because you decide one time we are people who worship God. We appear before him in his sanctuary every Sunday. That's who we are. Uh, and so your kids know that, hey, we're going to worship. Well, I don't know, my arm's hanging off. Well, tape it up. We're going. I mean, we're, we're going. It, we have a hard enough time keeping order and stability in our families with regular faithful worship. But no family who is consistently absent from worship is going to grow and bear fruit. It doesn't work that way. You're going to have all kinds of trouble. You have vowed to support the church in her worship. You don't break that vow for something of no consequence. And also on top of that, you are essential for us. It is encouraging to see you and have you singing and responding and praying. We are built up together with our steadfast faithfulness to each other and we come together in worship. Now we only have one expected gathering. But there are several other opportunities that we have. We have prayer meetings. We have men's forum. We have the Titus II women's group. We have young adult apologetics. We've got Thursday morning chapel. We've got the spring conference. We have all these other opportunities that are great. Attendance to these things is not the same as worship. It's not compulsory. But we believe you would benefit. Every one of these things is an example of somebody putting themselves out there to serve you, to meet some need in the life of the body. So you have vowed to support the work of the church, and that means showing up and throwing yourself in when there's work to do. Supporting the work of the church always also means giving financially to the work of the church out of the increase that God has given you. Not because the church needs money, not because God needs your money. Financially, we're just, we're just fine. We're meeting all of our commitments as a church. There's, there's nothing really to worry about there. We're a ways off from meeting some of our long-term goals, but, but we trust that God will provide and help us meet those long-term goals. It's not that the church needs your money. You need to learn the discipline and the habit of giving. Giving is an act of worship. All throughout the Bible, you have the principle of giving a representative portion out of what God has given you back to Him. God commands His people not to come before Him empty-handed. And so you bring into worship a portion of the product of your work as a way of recognizing God's provision over the whole. Uh, let's say you can't work it out on paper to give 10% of your gross. Okay, well, what about your net? The, the principle is throughout the Old Testament, you give out of your increase. Deuteronomy keeps using that word. Uh, you give out of your increase, your profit, your growth, your abundance. So, so stuff comes out of your paycheck that you don't see and you don't ever get. So, so maybe you give out of your net or you, you can't do that right now because you've got financial commitments and you've gotten yourself into debt and you've got things that you're trying to work out. Well, well give out of what you have left over to, to live on. 
And God will bless that. The, the point here is not to nickel and dime God and to try to get ridiculous about how little we can give and how little we can get away with. That's what the Pharisees got into. The point is to thank God for the whole by worshiping him with the representative part. In the Old Covenant, that was 10% of the increase. Now, you may argue, well, I don't believe God requires the Old Testament tithe anymore. Okay, but there are collections and there are offerings in the New Covenant for the work of the ministry, for the support of the poor. So there's theological uh, uh, basis both in the Old Covenant and New Covenant for collection, for giving as an act of worship. And so there's no, there's no loophole there. One way to think about this is if everyone gave the same way that I did, how healthy would the church be? If, if everyone did what I did, would we be a healthy church or would we be very anemic and struggle to make our commitments? Another thing to remember is that whether or not you believe in tithing, everyone tithes. You, you tithe to something, just like everybody worships, right? There are no atheists. Everybody worships something. Everybody has a God. In the same way, tithing is an inescapable concept. Since the first fruits, the 10%, uh, the, the 10% is either going to go to God or gonna, it's going to go to somebody else. You can give it to yourself or your creditor or your vacation uh, savings account or your recreation, but you're going to give it to somebody. And the one to whom we make our offering is our God. The one who gets the fruit of our labor is the one we call God. We give the tithe to the person who we believe has blessed us, and that belongs to no other than our Creator. Our very last vow, the final vow, and I'm I am conscious of the time and I ask you to forgive me. Let me take just a couple of minutes and hit this last vow. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and to pursue its purity, uh, its purity and peace? Do you promise to pursue its purity and peace? That means we commit ourselves to being a people who submit to biblical authority. When we hear words like authority, we think immediately about tyranny and abuse of authority. But the Bible doesn't hesitate uh, from speaking about uh, the authority that God has established in His church. I, I read from Hebrews 13 last week. Uh, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, God's Word calls us to joyfully support and embrace the spiritual leadership that God has given us through the church. We do not obstinately oppose or set ourselves against the authority that God has placed in the church. Of course, that authority is in our elders, who we all must submit to each other, by the way. And we submit to our presbytery as, as a church who is uh, in covenant with the Augustan Presbytery of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, we submit to our presbytery. When our presbytery says, hey, this is how we're going to do it, we say, yes, sir, this is how we're going to do it. That's what we're going to do. We're men under authority. And this authority is not only found in men, but it's also found in our church government. We have agreed together to be governed a certain way and to submit to each other. We have agreed that we're not congregational. We just aren't. We're not congregational. Neither are we dictatorial, you know, with a big personality pastor who just tells everybody what to do. We are Presbyterian in church government, which means we have a, a plurality of elders and we are part of a presbytery, which is part of a council. And that means when things go sideways or we have disagreements with each other, we follow our church government. There is a decent and orderly means of addressing complaints and addressing offenses. And if you aren't satisfied with how things are addressed here, 
you can appeal. You, you aren't exposed. You aren't left to languish under the thumb of a tyrant. Our order is in place. Our government is in place to protect everyone. And we have all vowed to submit ourselves to the government of the church. You have also vowed to pursue the purity and peace of the church. Pursue. I love that word. And I love that it's in there. Pursue is not passive. It is active. You have committed yourself to pour yourself out and extend yourself for the godliness and for the holiness of of the church. You reject Satan and all of his methods. You reject all of his worldly means of doing business and doing relationships. And you do everything in your power to maintain harmony, happiness, safety, and security in the household of faith. You can't have peace without purity, so they go together. Purity is essential, but as a means of peace. There's a kind of person who doesn't know how to do anything but fight. Everyone is an enemy, everything is a threat, and they foment constant conflict and drama and tedious warfare. They shoot at the saints in the name of purity. What they really just want to do is build themselves up by fighting all the time. But see, the goal of purity, the purpose of purity is peace. If we have conflict, we want to get through it to the rest. Peace in the Bible doesn't mean that we're just not fighting right now. Peace, shalom, takes into account the whole well-being of the, of, of the congregation of God's people. When we pursue peace for each other, that means I want you to thrive and I want you to have everything that you need for life and godliness. I want you to abound in every good thing. And I've promised to do that for you because I've taken this vow. I vow to pursue your peace. Well, these are the vows we've taken together. These are the vows that call us to covenant faithfulness, not to extra covenantal burdens. Every one of these vows that we've taken together, I'm sorry, extra biblical burdens, every one of these vows that we've taken together represent biblical truth. And, and, and uh, we, we have, have covenanted together to, to maintain righteousness and godliness and pursue God's pleasure. And if we keep these vows, if we keep covenant together, we will have an unstoppable, revolutionary, transformative force and not be an 80-20 church or a 70-30 or a 50-50 church. We have 100, 100%, 100, everybody keeping covenant, keeping their vows, taking their duties to heart. God has promised all manner of blessing to those who keep covenant. And I just want to read this. In, uh, I'm going to let Uh, Deuteronomy 28 have the last word on covenant keeping. Uh, This is after Moses reestablished a covenant with the generation that was about to go take the land of Canaan. And this was one of his final messages to them. He says, now it shall come to pass. If you diligently obey the voice of Yahweh your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that Yahweh your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and blessed shall be your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Yahweh will command the blessing on your storehouses and all the that's in it and everything that you set your hand to, he will bless you in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. 
Yahweh will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in his ways, then all people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh and they shall be afraid of you. And Yahweh will grant you plenty of goods and the fruit of your body in the increase of your livestock and the produce of your ground and the land which, you, which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give you. Yahweh will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give rain on your land in its season to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And Yahweh will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall be above only and not beneath if you heed the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you today, and be careful to observe them. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for this word and these promises that you have covenanted with us to, to keep your vows to us. You keep your promises and you are faithful to your word. So make us a people who keep our promises and our covenants and our vows and our oaths with each other. So Father, give us your grace. We need it. We're imperfect and we're lazy and we're so easily discouraged. Father, build us up by your Holy Spirit to recommit ourselves to these things that we have promised to each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.